uh, today on in our series of Revelation, and we have entered into the part that so many people argue about, right? That there's so many, so many different perspectives of this section and moving forward through the rest of Revelation. There has been so much written. And, and I want to encourage you, in fact, Cooper did this this week in the community group questions, I want to encourage you to, to study them. I want you to think about these different ideas and interpretive models that you can find in the book of Revelation or that you could approach the book of Revelation. And the reason for that is because it matters. It, it, it informs how we approach life. For example, one of the views, the futurist view, the, the classical dispensational view, is fighting hard for us, reminding us we must remember Israel, the nation of Israel, as they've been attacked by Hamas because they think that God has a future plan for the nation. And that's all attached to the way they approach and interpret Revelation. I'm going to suggest we should care about what's happening in Israel because it's a terrorist group attacking a group of people that have their right to be a nation, right? So, so the humanity issues, the image of God issues, those are reasons we should be concerned. But I would suggest the nation of Israel doesn't have a plan or a place in the plan of God. In fact, we'll see some of that today as we work through, but not because that's the point. It's just the way that I, I can't help but approach, and that becomes clear uh, in my teaching of the book of Revelation. But in saying that, I want to remind you, it's not those interpretive points or whether you're a futurist or a preterist or a historist or an idealist. Those, those are the four main groups. And I, for some of you, you're like, oh, what does that mean? You, go, go study it. it you, you, you are smart enough to learn it. Um, but uh, that's not the primary point of why John is writing. He wrote this book because Jesus wanted to bless his church. And there are lessons in every one of these issues that we have debated and even over the years divided over that we would all agree on. And that's really what we're going to fight hard to maintain. Even though you'll hear my view come out, it will be clear what position I take if you know anything about those positions. But my position is I, I'm not hoping that you become an idealist that floats somewhere between amillennialism and classic historical premillennialism. My hope is that you see the Bible and what Jesus intends for us so that we will be prepared to live in these last days. And that's, I mean, I kind of saw that last week as we studied Revelation 6, and we're moving into Revelation 7 this week. But the, the main point, the thrust of the lesson last week, which I think is the thrust of the vision of the seven seals and their breaking, is that the breaking of the seals revealed Jesus' sovereign reign over the events of the last days, from his resurrection to his return. The last day started, he inaugurated them by his death and his resurrection and into his ascension. And they will end, those last days will end when he returns. And I think there's a biblical precedent for that, that, that we are in and have been in the last days. We will continue to be in the last days until God comes and Jesus says, I'm making all things new. And calls us into the new heavens and the new earth. That will last until that time. Now, I think that's the whole point of these seven seals that we study and that we're kind of in the middle of as we work through this. 
Now, just think about it, because none, none of this, none of, none of the things that happen are outside of his control or his plan or even his work to bring into be. The, the, none of the writers, the, the conqueror that came out conquering, the counterfeit Christ that comes out conquesting or conquering is not outside of Christ's authority. The, 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 the other three writers, the, the writer bringing conflict, the writer bringing scarcity, and the writer bringing death in Hades, that, those writers are under his sovereign control. The, the reality that the church is going to endure the last days and then be called to wait until the time is complete. We, we endure in patience under the supreme and sovereign reign of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Even the events of the last, the end of history as we know it, the, the last of the last days, the, the clouds, or not the clouds, I'm sorry, the, the, the sky being rolled up like a scroll, mountains and islands being moved from their place, even those events, the last judgment where the image in the seventh seal of fire falling on the earth, being thrown down on an earth by, the, by an angel in service to God. All of those are under his reign. But make no mistake, John is not revealing this to the church to cause us to, to run to God because we're afraid. You get that. No, it's not that it shouldn't cause some people to quake. It should cause some people to tremble in severe fear and anxiety. But the people who should be trembling in fear and anxiety are not trembling in fear and anxiety because they're rejecting the reality that God is sovereign. He is revealing this to the church as a blessing to us. Remember what it says, that the, the revelation itself, he who reads these words is blessed in the reading of them. He's not trying to motivate us by fear. He is not trying to consume us with, with, with um, a, an anxiety and a, a, a fear that's so great that we seek to preserve ourselves by running to God. He's trying to instill in us the knowledge that God is Sovereign. Not to remove the struggle, but to enable us to endure patiently in the midst of the struggle. That's the lesson that comes out of these seven seals. He wants us to know that though we don't know all the answers, and it's obvious we don't know all the answers because there's so many ways that people approach this book and so many ways that we obviously don't know all the answers, but we know the God who knows, Right? We don't know what, what what's tomorrow holds in the details. But we know the God who's sovereign over the events of tomorrow in all of its details. We don't have the power to control it. We don't have the, the, the wisdom to restrain anything. We don't have the authority even to determine how it should go. We don't get to say when seasons start and when seasons end. But we know the God who does. Right? That's the whole thing. Now we come to Revelation 7. And the lesson isn't much different. 
But the lesson is intended to remind us that this is, it, it, it should give us confidence. It should cause us to run in joy to our king, to the sovereign, to appreciate his sovereignty. As we see John having kind of a, a vision within a vision. It's not inception, a dream within a dream. It's a, it's a vision within a vision. Right? We're going to see that today. And I, I think as all of this description, let's just jump in and, and let's walk through it so that, well, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it. So re- beginning and reading in verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the sea or on, the, on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Well, Father, we need your spirit to lead us into truth. We are are limited. We are finite. We, we, We can't see all that we'd like to see. We can't know all that we'd like to know. We can't even comprehend fully all that you've done in and throughout history, much less what you intend and have decreed you will do throughout the future. But we can trust you. So more than anything, Father, as your servant today, 
I would hope and pray that you'd help me do what I can't do to lead this people to just trust you and live as a result of that trust. These are your words, so I'd long, I pray, desire to see your mission done. And I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So this is a vision within a vision. It doesn't come without having some context around it. And you can see that immediately with the first two words. After this. After this. After what? Well, all we've got to do is look right back up before it and to see the verses that came before it. It's the sixth seal. Well, wait a minute. The scroll had seven seals. We get to the sixth seal, and John is interrupted. It's called an interlude. It happens here in the seal judgments, but it also happens in the next group of seven, the trumpet judgments, that we get through six of those, and there's an interruption. There's an interlude that draws our attention to something else that's vital to know. It's necessary to know if we're really going to understand what's happening in this particular group of seven. After this, he says. After what? The breaking of the seventh seal. Or the sixth seal. Sorry. Before the breaking of the seventh seal. Well, what happens in the breaking of the sixth seal? Well, you just look up there and, and, and take a look. After what? The sixth seal is the end of the world as we know it. It's the cataclysmic events that bring this age to an end, preceding the final judgment that precedes the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. The, the sky vanished like a scroll, beginning in verse 14. The sky, sky vanished like a scroll and is being rolled up, and, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then listen to what happens to the, among the people. Then the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, so not just the rich and powerful, but also the ones in bondage. They've hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're looking to hide. Why? Because the great day of their wrath, the God and the Lamb, their wrath has come. And they ask this question, who can stand. You think about that. That's such an important question. It's a vital question. And it seems, it seems to me, as I understand the flow of this and, and why this would come immediately after this and interrupting the cataclysmic events of the end of days to the to the to separating that from, from the final judgment that's going to be fire being thrown down on the earth. God supplies John with an interruption, a vision within a vision to help him see the answer to this question. Who can stand? You just think about it. Here's a people, and, and, and it's shocking really. Here's a people who God's wrath has been re being revealed against for all of the last days. Conquerors conquesting. Conquerors conquering <laughs> for the sake of conquest. The writer bringing conflict and, and people killing one another. 
scarcity such that there's not enough to go around. There's more work and not enough resources to get it done. And all the work is fighting over the same resources because there's not enough to go around. But it's limited. God limits it. He restrains it from affecting everything. His wrath being revealed in death and the afterlife, right? Like his wrath. He is not hidden the fact that his wrath is real. His wrath has been being revealed. And believe it or not, people are so consumed with their selfish views, their self-exaltation, their rejection and rebellion against God, that even though this revealing of his will will last to the cataclysmic events that bring history to a close, that on this earth there will still be a generation of people that will finally admit it's God's wrath, but won't repent and run to God for mercy. They'll try to hide from him and escape his judgment. It won't work. It won't help them. Everything they do will just result in more judgment. But those people will be here from now and have been since the time of Jesus and will be here after we're long gone. There will be people rejecting God's sovereign reign over the world. And when he comes in judgment, rather than ask him for mercy, they will seek to hide from him. But they ask a vital question. Who can stand? They know they can't. They know they they can't stand because I got to hide. I can't stand before God. I got to hide. Hide me. Fall on me. Crush me. Take me out. I don't want to do it. But it seems... That God gives John this interruption, this vision within a vision, this interlude into the middle of this so that John can answer the question, not for those who are rebelling against God, because I don't think he's interested in answering their question for them. I think he's he's interested in answering his question for those who can stand. So that rather than quake in fear, rather than be ruled by anxiety, rather than feeling like we got to have all the little details figured out, know so that we can chart our graphs and timelines and figure out the exact day and time and hour that he's coming so that we can be ready on that day, but up until that day we can kind of do what we want so that we can live as he called us to in the fifth seal. Rest, wait, trust me. We need to know the answer to this question. We need to understand the answer to this question. And so God gives us this interlude through John so that this question can be answered for his people. So I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to walk through the verses so that you can, again, not just take my word for it. The ones who can stand, right? Who who can stand? The ones who can stand before God and the Lamb are the ones who the sovereign Lord has sealed for the salvation that belongs to Him. The ones who can stand before God and the Lamb are the ones who the sovereign Lord has sealed for the salvation that belongs to Him. 
Now, let me just show you. Let's walk through it. Let me show you how that answer is developed. In verses 1 through 3, what do we see happening? So after this, it's not a chronological after this, like, oh, the six seals broken, and now God is going to go seal. In fact, we can see in these verses that before, it's like after John's seeing this, here's the seals got broken. He knows what's behind them. But then he has this vision. So in the way he saw it, this interlude follows the breaking of the seals. But the carrying out of the seals, we see in these first three verses, is restrained. There's an angel with the seal of God that rises up and says, Wait! Wait, horsemen! Winds that are going to blow and bring, bring harm on the earth. Wait, sky, don't roll up like a scroll. Wait, mountains and islands, don't, displace, don't be displaced, right? He, calling a restraint to the events of these things. And he references that in the four winds of the earth, the four angels that are given to do harm. And, and I would suggest that, these, that, that this is just another way to speak of the four horsemen and the events of the persecution that's going to happen to the church that precede the cataclysmic end of all things as we know it because John draws on imagery. He's seeing imagery that is connected to Zechariah's prophecies all the way back in the Old Testament that speaks of four horsemen and four four horses is that right? Horses? Yeah. Four horses, not horse eye, four horses pulling chariots. Um, in that prophecy, you go back and look at it yourself, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, you can see it. Those horse and riders and chariots are, are all referenced or referred to as winds that bring damage and destruction. And so I think that John, using that same language that's rooted in that same prophecy that's probably reconciled or, or being fulfilled in the writing of the horsemen, is happening here. And he's saying, I saw an angel rise up with a seal of God and say, before any of this can actually occur, God's people need to be sealed. So it's not a, chrono, it's not a flowing of events like, oh, the four horsemen start riding and then people get sealed. There's a way in which God sealed them before the horseman ride or the persecution begins. It's reminiscent of the, the ten plagues that uh, God brings on Egypt. And on the tenth one, he says, hey, go kill a lamb, eat the lamb, and take its blood, paint it on the doorpost. And what happens as a result of them painting it on the doorposts? The angel of death passes over their house. And so, so that tenth plague where all of Egypt's uh, firstborn are killed, animals and everything, the firstborn of every living being and creature of Egypt that didn't paint the blood on the doorposts, they're killed. But everyone from Israel who painted the, painted the um, blood on the doorposts, their children are spared. They were sealed, right? It's the idea. That's the picture that it's drawing out. It's also reminiscent of uh, Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 9 where, where God is, is pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And before he pronounces that judgment in Ezekiel 9, you can read that he sends an angel to seal the people in Israel who 
who, who groan and sigh against the sin that Israel is committing. There's a, a way in which we see that same thing happening in Ezekiel 9. It's reminiscent of this idea. So here's this angel who's saying, all of these things are coming. All of these things are going to happen. There's nobody that can stop them. But before they occur, we have to seal God's people. And he's got God's seal in his hand. So here he is, restraining the events of the six seals, or really all seven, the six seals that John has seen, restraining those for the time that his people can be healed. Well, okay, so there's a sealing. Then in verses 4 through 8, we just walk a little bit further through that. Immediately he hears, and I heard the number of the sealed. So we know that there's an angel out there sealing them, right? That the angel got sent from God is going around sealing God's people before it all comes. John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000. And we read verses 4 through 8, walk through all of that, right? There's 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. I won't read it again, but you know what I'm talking about. Here's these 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. Or is it? I'll answer that question in a minute. Then, after seeing it, or after, I'm sorry, after hearing it, in verse 9, he looks. He doesn't see a nation established in 12 groups of uh, 12,000, Right? Like, you picture, you picture those, it's like on, this is a terrible analogy, but on Star Wars when Darth Vader walks up and, you know, the star, the, the, what are they called? The stormtroopers, gosh, I know this better than this. The stormtroopers are all arrayed out there, right? And they're in their, their groups, they're all segmented off. He doesn't look out and see a nation separated into 12 groups of 12,000. What does he see? A multitude, a sea of people that... That though God can count them, that God can assign a number to them, no person can. And, and where are they at? Standing before the throne. Who can stand? Those who are sealed. The number of the sealed is 12,000. But then who's the one standing before the throne? The multitude. And then we get to verse 13 through 15. And one of the 24 elders that was already around the throne, starting back in this, in, in, at the beginning of this vision in Revelation chapter 4, one of these elders walks up to John and is like, hey, who are these people? Who is this multitude in white robes that are standing before the throne praising God? Who are they? Where did they come from? And John's like, well, you know. Like, I, I want to know. Don't, you, you know. You, you tell me. And so he does. But if we're really going to understand the answer to this question, that those who can stand are those who are sealed, we've got to understand who it is that the Lord has sealed for salvation. Who is this? We've got to understand the answer to the elder's question. And there's a number of cues here, a number of, a number of ways that we can answer it. First, I would tell you, point you back to verse 3. They are the servants of God. Who is the angel saying must be sealed before these things take place? Who is the angel saying, hey, restrain the winds, restrain the angels. We must seal who? The servants of God. The word is doulos. It's the slaves. It's the one who are under his authority, the ones who belong to him, who are his property on the earth. These 
people of God, these servants of God must be sealed. Now, in that phrase, in that verse, there's no reason to limit them in any way. Because who are the servants of God? The people of God from all time, right? Like from, from the time of Adam all the way to the last person who takes a breath. They are going, there are going to be servants of God. But then John hears a number that does seem to limit it. And if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're, I think even the Mormons have this view that there's 144,000, and that's a limiting number. I would suggest in verse 4, when he hears this 144,000, that this, we should see this number more as a symbol, as more as a, a, a um, well, symbolic rather than literal. And there's reasons for that. And I would also suggest that when he speaks of these 144,000, he's not speaking about the nation of Israel. And this automatically is going to make me different than some of the people in this room. That's okay. But there's reasons why I would suggest that these are not the nation of Israel. And here, let me just, there's a bunch of them. Let me share three of them with you. First, in all the lists of Israel in, in the rest of the Bible, specifically, especially in the Old Testament, I think, I forget the number, I feel like there's 18 lists of the tribes of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And they're all slightly different. But none of them have, have, have things in common with this list. For example, Judah never comes first. He shouldn't be at the first of the list. Immediately, anyone who knows about the tribes of Israel is going to understand there's something different immediately when they begin to hear it. The second thing, uh, a second point of that difference of this list is that the, the tribe of Dan is not listed. Now, you probably didn't hear that. You probably didn't think, oh, man, they left Dan out. What about Dan? There's a reason you didn't, because we don't know the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But you want to know which one is missing that I recognized immediately? Ephraim. You know why I missed the name of Ephraim? Because my middle name is Ephraim. And I'm like, eh, that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's one of the sons of, right? So I know, and I would look for that, and I... But anyone who's familiar is going to recognize, wait a minute, Dan's all left out. What about Dan? Man, ain't nobody made it from Dan. Sorry, that's, that's not funny. I don't know why. The wise making me chuckle. And many people would suggest that it's because of the idolatry committed by that tribe that they're left out. I don't know. I think it's because this list is more symbolic than it is to be taken literally. Another name that is different that demonstrates that there's something going on is that Levi is in the list and he's never in any of the other lists because Levi was the servants of God in such a way that they weren't given property, right? They were provided for by the rest of the tribes of Israel. So they're not in the list. They don't get part of the land promise because they're the priests. They're the servants of God that, that take care of the temple. But here they're named. And then finally, the last point I would make to just demonstrate that this list is probably more symbolic than literal of the nation of Israel is that Joseph is named. One of his sons, Manasseh, is named, and Joseph is named. Ephraim, his other son, isn't named. In the other list, as it's speaking about the nation, the other lists call out not Joseph, but Manasseh and Ephraim. So Joseph 
I guess, I guess Manasseh gets a little bit extra because there's people. No, it's a symbolic list. It's, it shouldn't be taken literally as the literal nation, the number. It demonstrates, it speaks to an army of God's people, but not, not a literal nation. There's another reason I would suggest that this list should be a second reason, I, I think this list should be not cons- considered as the nation of Israel because we've already been introduced to Jerusalem or to Israel in the book of Revelation. In the letters, who did John hear? How did he call, how, how did Jesus identify the Jewish people living in the day of John? The synagogue of Satan. I don't want us to go out and just start beating on Jewish people, right? I don't want us to be anti-Semitic. But I'm going to suggest that God's view of the nation of Israel is not the same as those people who would look at this and say the nation of Israel is represented well in the book of Revelation. And here's why. I think this list is symbolic of this people. Third, and I think to me this is one of the most convincing, and probably I could have just used this one and you'd have been fine, but I want you to have a little bit more than just the... But the exact same thing happens in John chapter 5. John is weeping. Who can open the seal? No answer. Silence, right? He is weeping. And an angel comes in, an elder comes in and says, hey, weep no more. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is here, right? John hears one thing, and he turns and looks, and he doesn't see a tree, and he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? The reality of what the revelation is. He sees the lamb that was slain. Right? And that's exactly what happens here. So, so we've got, so, 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 so just follow with me just a minute. So, so the first way we could name this group of people is the servants of God. We see that in verse 3. We, 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 the next way we could say it is 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. We see that in, in verses 4 through, uh, I forget the, ver, ver, verses 4 through 7, 4, 4 through 8, sorry. But then, when John looks, what he sees is not an array of 12,000. He sees a multitude, which is the reality of the revelation. He's not seeing 144,000 people. He's hearing a symbolic number spoken of in symbolic ways that represent these multitudes of people that are wearing white robes who are now standing before the throne doing what the lost person who's facing the wrath of God can't fathom happening. Who can stand? These people, this multitude wearing the white robes can stand. He sees it happening. The multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, is that right? Like this, this people from all times and places. But, 
we got to be careful. Because if we automatically assume that as people from every age, we'll miss out on what the angel or the elder tells him. Who are these that you see wearing these white robes? And he specifies they are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. I think, I've, I've sought to be clear, what's the great it's the tribulation? The great tribulation is that time from Jesus' resurrection till his return. The tribulation is, this is the people of God. Now, I think it's vital and important to recognize that he uses this intratestamental language. I don't even know if that's a word, so just let me define it, intratestamental. He's using language from both testaments, connecting us, connecting God's people to the people of God from all time, the servants of God, that's the people of God from all time, the the. the the, the multitude from all people's tribes and connected to the nation or the people of Israel from the Old Covenant. It's a way in which it connects us to God's people from all time. But John isn't being given this revelation to encourage or bless the people that lived before Christ. Who needs to know who can stand before the throne of God? The people who are going to endure the hardships of the four horsemen, the persecution that comes even to the point of death, and who are still going to be living when mountains begin to move and islands begin to be thrown away and the sky rolls up like a scroll. Who needs to know that God is still sovereign and that his church won't be destroyed? The people who are alive today the people who endure all of the tribulation. And so though I don't want to single out this group of people from the whole people of God in the sense that they're more special or that they've got some, per, some, some increased presence or protection, I do want to specify the fact that he's calling out that these are the people from the tribulation so that we, brothers and sisters, who are living in the midst of the tribulation of the last days, will be encouraged that though hardship is coming and we will face it, God is sovereign. And he has done something for you in order to protect you and preserve you. He has sealed you. Who can stand? The ones who can stand before, the, before God and the Lamb are the ones who the sovereign Lord has sealed for the salvation that belongs to him. Well, who are those ones that have been sealed? It's the people of God who live in this day. He will ensure that we're able to stand before his throne and never be removed. Why would he do this? Why would he seal us for this time. Now, I don't want to ask the question in the sense of, well, you know, why would he do that for me and not someone else? Well, what's his purpose in the sealing of his people? Why is he sealing them? Well, he's sealing them, first and foremost, to protect us from his wrath. We see that all the way through the, the, the vision of the six seals and even the seventh that follows immediately after this interruption, this vision within a vision, we see his wrath falling, 
right? He is protecting us from his wrath. The hardships are going to be experienced. We live in a world that's marked by hardship and, and, and that is under a curse. His wrath is falling. But he is protecting us from his wrath. He, it isn't as if, let me say, I said it this way last week. I, I kind of referenced it at the beginning of the sermon. Let me just draw it back in here. It bears repeating. God's sovereignty doesn't change the fact that life here is hard. Because four horsemen are riding, bringing conquest and conflict and scarcity and death. And there is persecution that comes to his people because of that reality. And there is judgment that is happening. His wrath is being revealed. And there's the threat of his wrath finally being poured out in its fullness. His sovereignty doesn't deny the hardness of the world in which we live in, but it enables us to know that he's faithful and that he hasn't lost control and that he's in authority, that he hasn't been, nor will he ever be beaten. Now we see his sovereignty out on the people who are being sealed. I am going to withhold my wrath from you. You're still going to feel the hardness of it. But this is as close to my wrath as you will ever come. You will live in a world that's going to feel my wrath in its fullness, but you will never be harmed by my wrath. It may hurt a little bit, but it will never harm. In fact, Spurgeon has said, and I think this quote's on the screen, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only Good in a mysterious form. <laughs> you like that? I'd rather have good in an obvious form. <laughs> like, we want that better more, than, more so than in a mysterious form. It's only good in a, in a mysterious form. Loss enriches him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. We live in a world that will always be marked until the day comes that he ends it, will always be marked by the revealing of God's wrath. But he has protected us from that wrath. He restrained the writers. He restrained the persecution. He restrained the, the, the day of judgment until his people could be sealed to protect them from his wrath and to preserve us for eternity. We see this in verses 15 through 17, which we haven't touched yet in our explanation. He sealed us for eternal salvation. Look at what he says. Then, then one of the elders, I'm sorry, 15 through 17, therefore, they are before the throne of God. Who can stand? Who can be before the throne of God? The ones he sealed. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night. Who are the servants of God? The ones who are sealed. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. He will protect them from his wrath. Listen. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the, lamb in their, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherds. You remember Jesus walking among the lampstands which were representative of the churches? He is with us. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their 
eyes. This is language that leads us to, leads us to think of what's coming in Revelation 21. When Jesus stands on the earth and says, I'm making all things new, the new city is coming down and he is wiping every tear from every eye that belongs to him. He is protecting us from his wrath and he is preserving us for eternity in his presence with him forever. That is why he seals us. So that though we live in these last days, we will never be harmed by the wrath that he pours out on this earth. It will only ever refine us and, and draw us more fully into dependence and faith. So who can stand? Who can stand against these things? The one who has been sealed by God. And who are they? You and me. They, we, as, as we have placed our faith in him, as we have trusted in him, as we have looked back on his life, death, and resurrection, for salvation, he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 1. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance that one day, one day we'll step into heaven and we'll take, care, take, take hold of everything he's promised us. We are the ones who can stand before the sovereign Lord in worship because he has sealed us for salvation. We are the ones who can stand before the Lord in sacrificial service because he sealed us for salvation. We are the ones that can stand in the presence of the Lord and not run and hide because he has sealed us for salvation. We can stand in complete satisfaction, neither thirsting or hungering ever again, never, not, not being touched by the scorching sun. Not that there's not hot days. Or cold days. But because he has sealed us for salvation, there is nothing that's going to destroy us. We can stand in complete satisfaction in his eternal abundance. Because he has sealed us for satisfaction. We can stand in pure joy in his eternal presence. Because he sealed us for salvation. One final question. Do you understand now why those saints standing before the throne of God were crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord? Because they realized standing before him that the reason they were there is because he had sealed them for salvation. So yeah, we're going to live in hard days. We're going to experience hard things. But if we have been sealed for salvation, we can rest in the fact that nothing can take us from him. He sealed us. Brother, sister, Christian, that's yours. Rest in it. Place your hope in it. Not, not, not me and my teaching, but, but the reality of who God is and what he's done for you. But, but I know, sitting in this room, there are likely people who would seek to take that promise and make it theirs when they've never trusted in Christ, when they're doing everything they can to hide from him rather than repent and run to him for mercy. I just want, I, man, I want to say this carefully, but it's got to be blunt. These are blunt scriptures. There's going to be a day when you realize 
that that wrath is so severe. There will be no relief of common grace. There, there, there will be no relief, no abundance, except abundance of wrath. He is leaving mankind with no reason to stand and reject him. His wrath has been being revealed since the foundations of the world and his eternal attributes. He has been making it known. His wrath is being revealed. And there's coming a day when you're finally going to confess it. Don't let that be the day that you stand before him. Don't wait for that day. It will be too late. Your desire will be to run and hide rather than bow and repent. Trust in him today. Let's pray.